Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dental Practice Heroes podcast. We're doing another clinical episode with the guys from CSI. I got Dr. Brisky and Dr. Tahir doing. What's up guys? How are you guys doing? Great, Paul. Thanks for having us, brother. Yeah, so we're going to talk about something I know fairly well, I guess I'll admit, complications with implants and just periimplantitis and just those situations where you're like, man, I did everything great and it didn't work out. I don't know. I'm interested to hear this because I actually had... Man, I had two implant failures very recently, and I went for a pretty decent amount of time without one. So let's just jump in. Uh, what are we looking for? What are we doing? And and how do we handle these things? Well, I'm going to be that annoying old guy who says, well, if you haven't placed enough implants or you haven't had any failures, you haven't placed enough implants. And yep, unfortunately, yep. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's just true. I mean, and you just like from a mindset perspective, before we hop about talk about like the clinical stuff, from a mindset perspective, really at the end of the day, you have to be able to like look at the patient when a complication occurs and just be like, hey, yeah, this stuff happens. Don't worry about it. And say, your body rejected the implant. Now that it's mm. like anything that we did as the, the dentist that was wrong, it was like, hey, sometimes your body just doesn't accept the implant this time. We'll just, you know, start anew and we'll try again. And usually the second time, it's absolutely fine. You just have to say it like, oh, yeah, you need a filling or, hey, you need a crown. It's just you have to have that conversation. It's just a matter of fact. Super important. I like that because the first thing that we all think in our brains is, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. There is an implant failure. There's a complication, right? But you can't let the patient know that. You can't say, oh, shit. <laughs> you just have to tell them, hey, you know, 2% of the time, the bone isn't good enough around the implant and your implant didn't work. But good news is we're going to take care of you. And there's not going to be an extra increase in price for this, right? Because we're playing this really high stakes game, I like to call it, right? Failures and complications tend to be on simple cases, like a single implant, right? It's usually not like an all in X case. But biggest things are document well, do the right thing. And there's this new quote that I heard over the Neodent Symposium weekend by Dr. Elsmari. So I'll give him a shout out on that quote. But it's uh, remember to treat the patient, not ourselves. So I think. In a lot of clinical situations, it's important to do everything possible to help the patient and not worrying about small things like the cost of the graft material that you need to help fix the, the defect. At what point after placing a single implant, what does your follow-up look like? And when is the time where you're like, okay, I can tell if this is failing or not? How long after? Yeah, I usually will do a two-week, six-week, and then a three-month. So mm-hmm. two weeks, we're just taking sutures out, checking it, rinsing, educating, making sure the patient understands the next steps, all of the above. At six weeks, we get a PA, again, checking it all out. And then at three months, we're getting our three-month impression or scan. We're scanning, but, you know, three-month impression or scan. For the most part, when you're getting these post-ops back, we've all seen those posts on the internet where it looks like the implant had a complete failure, right? Buckle bone, lingual bone, all of it's gone. That usually happens within the first month. So I think just having routine post-ops, like Dr. Dune said, and taking an x-ray at every visit is going to really ensure that that doesn't happen to you. If it does, you it's one of those things where you have to immediately take it out and not delay it. But for the most part, and with implant complications, it's usually not complete failures that we're seeing. They're small ones, right? Like a, a one thread is exposed or two threads, right? It's usually not a complete disaster case. Yeah. And if I just do a quick med history review, uh, and then Dr. Brisky, just hop in and just let me know like if I missed anything. But real quick, make sure the patient's not on SSRI, antidepressants. ACE inhibitors is something to look for. 
adenic radiation, vitamin D deficiencies, diabetes and the A1C being under an eight. Sometimes I'll say 8.5, you know, but really under an eight is the safe zone. Any immunosuppressants or anything like from a rheumatologist that will inhibit soft tissue healing, the standard bisphosphonates, especially the injectables. And then we've found, found that there's an uptake in failures on um, amoxicillin allergies. If you can't prescribe amoxicillin and you put them on clindamycin, we're seeing an uptake in failures. So that's kind of like the really quick Cliff Notes version of some of the med history things to review with the patients before you even hop into surgery. Follow-up question to that I just want to ask is with the SSRIs because you know, the bisphosphonates and stuff like that, we know to look for these certain things, and, and I guess they're not as popular as like ACE inhibitors, I would say. But SSRIs are very popular. So what do you do in the case that they're on an SSRI? Because a lot of times, I mean, are we stopping that medicine or, you know? Yeah, I'll speak from experience on this one. Never take them off their SSRI or be the one who recommends it. I mean, you got to talk to their primary care or their psychiatrist, whoever's prescribing it. Because I learned this one the hard way, and this patient's life, like, almost like a tornado hit it. I was responsible for how she was treating her family members and all sorts of stuff. And so from an SSRI perspective, yeah, speak, document to another physician who's prescribing it and make sure they're the ones who are kind of tapering them off of it because it can be a pretty brutal, I guess, what's it called, detox off of it or whatever you want to call it. What is the failure rate with, I mean, what is, how much does it decrease the odds that it's going to go in, that the implant's going to integrate? Good question. I actually know this one because I just spent my Saturday and Sunday updating our curriculum where I added like 120 <laughs> <laughs> There was an article where there was like 400 and like 413 patients or something. And of that, 53 patients were selected and 10 implants failed. And eighty, like something around like eighty four. So I think it's like sixteen percent. I think is what that article said. So it's actually pretty significantly high. But that shouldn't still be an absolute contraindication, right? And we just—it's one of those things where you follow closely in terms of your post ops, and you just add it in your consent form, and you just proceed like normal. Yeah, and the thing is with SSRIs, when they do fail. I mean, it's pretty catastrophic failures. I'm talking like buckle wall, lingual wall, all the above. It blows out pretty quick. Some medications that are important to take beforehand, right? When you're doing implants in general, we have a little form. And on that form, it has a few things that we recommend people to take pre-op. One of them is vitamin D. Every single patient of ours gets on vitamin D at 10,000 IUs. Right, they may be taking an additional multivitamin, but they never can have enough vitamin D. I currently take ten thousand IU's. I think maybe it's even up to fifteen thousand, and we're just normal people. But imagine how deficient people are with vitamin D. Your other alternative is to test everyone. You can test everyone in your clinic. I'd rather just supplement everyone because <laughs> everyone, everyone's deficient anyway. So vitamin D is a good one. Multivitamin is good. And also for healing, what we've seen for increase or decreased hematoma and swelling is bromelain. I think I'm saying that word right, but it's in pineapple. Pineapples have a specific nutrient in it, which is responsible for decreased hematoma and inflammation. So we'll have them either say, hey, pick up this bromelain tablet online. I think it's at Vita Medical. I think is the name of it. I took that actually when I had a surgery last year. Or you can just drink pineapple juice. I never heard of any of those things. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of literature and studies coming out and people are, just because implants are getting so much more commonplace, 
we're finding in the literature, all these things are going to help move the needle. Even if it's a percentage point or two, everything helps. So that's med history review. Now, like, what do we actually do when we start to like, you know, you place your implant or you do your socket grafting and socket preservation. And then you, they come back in in two weeks and there's pus coming out of the socket. Like Dr. Brisky, what's your, what's your go-to when you see that red tissue inflamed, they're reporting pain, and then there's either like purulence or not? Immediately remove. So that day is possible. If not, then if we have to delay it a few days for, you know, oral sedation purposes, at that point, I'll prescribe a topical antibiotic, like a topical metronidazole gel that I'll actually have them tap on, on top of the soft tissue until they can return. Because when you have a catastrophic failure or a lot of pus and angry red tissue like that, the bone tends to go away very fast. So getting the implant out as soon as you possibly can. So that's going to mean a nice sized flap unscrewing the implant, even with your fingers, because it's going to just fall out. <laughs> and then uh, debriding the bone, rinsing with, you know, Paradex is perfectly fine. And then at that point, we'll graft with a membrane for the most part, because at that point, usually the buckle or the lingual part of that bone is missing. And inside the graft material, I'll usually use allograft, like a 50-50 cortical cancellous mixture. And I'll add some gentamicin or metronidazole antibiotic, about a half a cc into the bone graft to help defend from that infection. Yeah, where are you getting the um, gentamicin and the metronidazole from? I had like two separate people text me about that today. Wherever you can find it. <laughs> because the world is uh, always using the COVID and then monkeypox and killer hornets and who knows what the next one will be as an excuse to not make products for people. <laughs> so uh, the short answer is if you can't find it on Southern Anesthesia or like McKesson, then at that point call a local compounding pharmacy. Now, what about the situations, I would say, when you come back for like the two-week follow-up, say you're taking out the sutures and you see that the tissue didn't completely close and you're getting some purulence coming out of where you placed your implant? So if it's not completely closed, you want to try to give the body a chance. And let's just assume the patient's been on antibiotics. They've been taking it three times a day, the amoxicillin. They've been doing everything they're supposed to do. There's no food stuck around it. And then you're still getting, you know, some pus and swelling and stuff around the tissue. Irrigate super thoroughly. And then I'd see them back in a few days to see if it's moving the needle, essentially. You know, I've seen a few come back and rebound from it. But oftentimes when you have that much inflammation and infection right after the placement of the implant, sometimes you're going to lose, you know, bone for a couple of threads. And then it may not necessarily be worth it to leave it around. But some people have gone ahead and checked those areas out and evaluated a week or two later, and it hasn't been an issue. And that's because, my anecdotal experience. Yeah, because it could be two things, right? It's either an infection from the implant because of the bone loss, or it's a soft tissue infection. So I think it's important to take like a CT, and if you look on a CT and your buckle's gone, man, you gotta, you gotta take that freaking thing out of there, like yesterday, right? But there are some cases that'll come back, right, six, eight weeks later, and you notice that there's actually a small tissue infection. And it's actually only because they haven't been brushing. So I think it's important to quantify whether it's a lesion from soft tissue or if at that point it's actually from bone loss from the implant. Right. And then maybe something to consider is sometimes, you know, the patient has a night guard or an Essex or a flipper or a denture or something that's just like not relieved appropriately that's creating some of the soft tissue irritation or hitting the healing abutment or whatever the case may be. 
So make sure you're kind of playing detective and looking at all the different angles. So it kind of sounds like to me that at this two-week follow-up and we're still having, if we're having issues at any point during this two-week to six-week follow-up, in your guys' opinion, there's not a whole lot to save. If it's a soft tissue infection, it should go away. But if you're already at two weeks and you're, just like Dr. Dune just said, in terms of starting off with a millimeter of bone loss, it's never a good idea. So at that point, I will always remove it and graft it and start over. Otherwise, you're just going to be delaying the inevitable, which is removing it at the six-week or 10-week mark where your patient's going to be much more pissed off <laughs> than whether if you were to just remove it right away. So talking about how we, 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 we remove the implant, we repair the bony defect, we graft it, how do we repair our emotional stability as a doctor when we go? Do, do you recommend going home and drawing a warm bath and crying or, or, or lashing out on your family. Like what, what works for you guys? I, I like to, to yell at people who are completely unsuspecting of why <laughs> why all this anger is coming their way. Now, here's the here's the thing. At, at the end of the day, it's it's like this is this is the job, right? And it's being able to like look at the patient, absorb whatever is coming your way from them, and just tell them like, look, dude, this is not the end of the world. This happens to a lot of people. So make sure the patient knows they're not alone in this, right? It's not their fault. It's their body's fault. It's his physiology's fault. It's like the body's. So first, they don't want to be judged and blamed. Second, you don't want to be judged and blamed. So then you blame physiology. But then you also reassure them like, hey, in the times that this happens, we've repaired it and everything is absolutely wonderful. So don't even worry about it. But you have to pull that one liner out quick and say it like you've done it before and in a way where the patient believes that that's the scenario. And then you do this long enough and then that's actually the scenario and you've repaired enough cases. Yeah, and don't feel free. I mean, let's just be brutally honest right here right now. A lot of time it is from the patient, but a lot of time it is from ourselves, (laughs) right? And it's okay to be honest with ourselves and say, hey, that just didn't work, right? But that's just part of the game, right? This part of this high stakes game that we're doing. But at the end of the day, if you do the right thing and you do the right thing at that specific time or taking the implant out or, you know, letting the patient know what's going on, you're never going to have issues and patients are never going to sue you. I think most of the time we're just more hard on ourselves than we really need to be. Yeah, that's true. So what would you say now we talked about like when the placing the implants, now we've got a, an integrated implant. It's been there for quite some time and now we're seeing some issues. I have this really cool statistic from the American Academy of Periodontology. They polled, uh, AAP polled the entire conference of periodontists. And only 5% of periodontists would rather treat an implant to save it rather than take it out. So I thought that was like absolutely mind-blowing that 95% of periodontists and probably 99% of general dentists (laughs) would be taking an implant out rather than trying to save the implant with grafting or soft tissue grafting. That kind of blew my mind. Wow. Yeah, that is impressive. One thing to just touch on before we hop into integrated implant, when you do a bone graft, it's like a huge defect. There's no interceptal bone, all that particulates in there. And then when you place your implant, you have to make sure the apex of that implant can engage some native bone past just the particulate because when you see some of these failures and there's no reason why it should occur medical history and everything is on like a healthy patient 
we see that when the implant is only engaged in graft material after four months or so, we're seeing failures on that too. So, but if you engage the apex of the implant into native bone, that actually will solve a vast majority of those complications. Now, if the IAN is like right underneath or there's like a vital structure, you, you know, you got to steer away from, away from, then at that point, let the, the bone graft sit for like six to seven months and then place your implant. But then you're prepping the patient for potential future complications on that one. So I wanted to take a segue and just address that because I've had a few ones that were head scratchers back in the day. And then that was actually the reason why I had those failures. Cool. So now we can segue back to we have integrated implant and now we're going to have complications now. So, Paul, are you talking about like just bone loss around like down to the first thread or, you know, what type of things will we run into? Well, I guess I guess what something that I would say, like what I see the most would just be we've had a stable implant and then we're looking, we, we see some threads and we're like going back a year or two and we're like, huh, it, yeah, we are losing bone around this implant. I got a good question for you, Paul. Yeah. True or false, all implants should be perioprobed and measured at every hygiene visit. I'm guessing this is going to be false, but part of me wants to be like an alien from another world that wants to probe everything. Let's just probe it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to go with false. Final answer. It's actually true. Uh, so you actually should perioprobe every single implant. Mm-hmm. A few studies out there, and this is always like a big debate, I feel like, in the dental world is do I probe implants? Well, if you don't probe the implant, you're never going to know if there's bone loss around it, right? Or you're never going to know if there's bleeding. I mean, we wouldn't sit by and watch a decay in the dentin grow into a root canal, right? And it's just the same thing. We, we shouldn't be letting predictable bone loss that's easily managed by non-surgical therapies, right? Like glycine or just scaling um, or an open flap and then watching it turn into surgical therapy with bone grafting and soft tissue grafting. The pressure that you put, because everyone's thinking, man, I don't want to probe around an implant. That seems really scary. It's actually just the exact same amount of pressure that you probe around a tooth is the amount of pressure you want to probe around an implant. And it's very light pressure, right? I think it's came out to like 0.50 newtons, I think is what the article that I read a while back. So it's light pressure, but every implant should be. <laughs> when they're probing. <laughs> At the end of the day, uh, actually, I have a question. Brisky, does not matter if it's metal or plastic or titanium probe or whatever? Or it's just like you can use any material around the implant. Yeah, good question. It doesn't matter. I, I think the plastic ones are a little bit thinner, so it's almost easier to work your way around the implant. Uh, I feel like with the metal one, more we're more keen to maybe pressing a little bit harder and initiating some bleeding. So whatever is going to keep your hands from pressing too hard. Right, so you're going to be lightly, gently probing around the implant because you should be keeping track of any implants in your practice that have a five millimeter probing depth and bleeding. So a five millimeter probing depth and bleeding is a sign of periodontitis or periimplantitis, which means that first you need to do non-surgically intervene before it turns into uh, surgical intervention. Now, as far as since just to follow up on that question, cleaning scalers, plastic, like we are all taught, still that, yeah. Yeah, regular scalers are, are fine. Yeah. 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 We give our uh, hygienist air polishers with a glycine powder. And so they're using the air polishers around the implants and then scaling and then taking PAs to just make sure that there's no bone loss. And then if they see anything they're concerned with, they, they grab us and we come in the room and take a look. Um, but like if there's exposed threads around it, you know, 
A, you don't want to just keep monitoring it. So you you're, initially you should be going like, okay, connective tissue grafting, let's get some of that keratinized tissue thicker around the site. And you may want to consider smoothing out the threads so it's polished and smooth metal versus just the exposed threads, which can accumulate bacteria. And again, some of this stuff is like stuff that we may not do in our general practice until the majority of what we do is surgical in nature. So I think then even if it's your implant, having a periodontist or someone who has your back understands that like, hey, you're going to do 80% of your implants and refer 20. And then in the event, five years later, two years later, there's some bone loss. They're going to help with the cases. It's nice to have someone in your corner backing you up on some of the complications or repairs or maintenance that you may not want to do. Because I guarantee you into the future with you know, millions of implants getting placed every year, whatever the statistic is, maintenance and repairing and complications on this stuff is going to be just kind of second nature. Because I feel like as long as you're following more like zero bone loss concepts, if anyone has read that book, make sure you read that book in terms of how to prevent crustal bone loss around your implants. Because if you can place an implant correctly surgically and restore it prosthetically following those guidelines, and then you have the patient that's effectively cleaning at home and you're effectively cleaning in the office, there is no reason for an implant to ever get bone loss. All right, good. All right, talk about your guys' offer. If anyone's interested at Colorado Surgical Institute and coming to one of your courses and learning more about surgical and all the other awesome things that you guys teach. Yeah, so if you guys text HERO to 970-546-7766, we got a, a special discount for Paul and all the listeners. So again, text HERO to 970-546-7766. And it's applicable to our single implant course, our wisdom tooth course, our full arch course, any of the things we're doing kind of within the surgical space. We're going to hook up all the listeners for your podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Doon from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.